studying the book of Acts together. We come to chapter 15, and if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we can rectify that. Men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Wave, get their attention. They'll put one in your hand, and it'll be marked to our passage for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us and from the Lord to you uh, this morning. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea, and they taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this very question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all uh, the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who uh, believed rose up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them, that is, the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things, known from God, to God from eternity are all of his works. And therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted to, by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. And it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also called Barsabbas, and Silas, uh, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from among us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to which we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us. 
being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by, the wor- by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well, farewell. And so they were sent off. They came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. And you have made quite an investment in the book of Acts in terms of sheer space and sentences related to this event. And we pray, Lord, that the importance of what it is that is here, how important it is to you and how important it is to us, that you would take that and lift it off of the pages of this Bible that we hold and plant it into our hearts, Lord. We live in this world and we are just constantly the unceasing and the measure is growing by the week in which it attempts to conform us, our thinking, our feeling, our believing, our doing, and how thankful we are to be able to turn to your word this morning and allow it to do in a way that is perfect, Lord, those same things. We ask for a work of your Holy Spirit through your word in each of our lives this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. At this point in the book of Acts, by way of a brief review, it has now been, as we kind of get our bearings, 20 years since the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. 20 years have gone by. Paul and Barnabas have recently, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, returned to the city of Antioch in Syria, their sending church, their home church, returned from their first missionary journey uh, to give them a report on what God had done. The church at Antioch at this time is very, very strong. It's very, very healthy. It's filled with peace. It's filled with joy. And it is a tremendous influence, the most influential church at that time in church history of any church at the time. And it had become now the missionary center for the gospel and for Christianity and all of the ancient world. And then in that city of Antioch, a Gentile city, Jews and Gentiles were being saved. The Holy Spirit was blessing them. Jews and Gentiles were serving alongside one another. And this great mystery that Paul spoke about in 
uh, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, this great mystery called the body of Christ was being birthed within that church in a way that wasn't really happening as dramatically anywhere else. The mystery of how God was creating one body, the body of Christ, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, saved through grace and through a simple faith in Jesus Christ. And here this dynamic, it's almost impossible for us not living in that day to understand the great animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles steeped in uh, in an antagonism toward the Jews and the Jews even more toward the Gentiles. And so this great a wall was built between them, and yet the gospel was bringing them together in a miraculous way and in a way that was demonstrating the power of God, the love of God, the heart of God for reaching the whole world in a way that had never been seen in human history, not even under the old covenant of the Old Testament. So this beautiful thing is happening at Antioch there. And then we're told that in verse 1, that one day certain men came from the church of Jerusalem into the city of Antioch. And they were Christians, and evidently when they came, they portrayed themselves as, have, as having been sent officially as representatives of the Jerusalem church, of the apostles, of the elders uh, there. And, and it isn't unlikely that they make this 250 to 300-mile journey from Jerusalem to Antioch because they have heard uh, news of what Paul and God is doing through Paul and Barnabas, but they don't believe that God is doing it, how it is that God is saving Gentiles simply on the basis of trusting in Jesus. This bothered them. This bothered them enough to make that kind of a journey over land to then come to uh, Antioch and to set the church straight and to set the people straight. And so they came to the uh, church and were told that they began to teach the brethren. And you can imagine what an audience, a receptive audience that they had received. Here are people supposedly sent by the apostles, and they've come from Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the famous Jerusalem, and so they were given a ready ear for whatever it is that they were going to teach the new Christians there in Antioch. And you notice what they taught in verse 1. They taught that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And they begin to teach this church in Antioch that a person is not saved on the basis of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but we are, not, we are saved by also being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses. Now, this is absolutely crazy. This is insane teaching, absolute violation of everything that Jesus taught, everything that God was doing in the early church, and yet they came in, and this is the teaching that they introduced uh, to these Christians who were having a wonderful time with the Lord, independent of, of all of this. It's important to notice that word saved in verse 1 because it tells us about the seriousness of what we're talking about here. This is not a peripheral issue that Christians can disagree about. 
When you start to talk about how people are saved and what's required to be saved, and you claim to be a representative of God, you are now dealing with the single most important question that people will ask in their entire lifetime. And then beyond that, you are then uh, telling them that you are giving them the correct answer to that question and that in order to be saved, a person must put their faith in Christ but also be circumcised and, and then keep the law of Moses. This is a subject, salvation, that you, there's no room for error in this. This is an eternal consequence and something you've got to be completely accurate about. You notice the reaction of Paul and Barnabas in verse 2. We don't know how long it took for them to discover that this was being taught in that church, that they were leaders uh, within, but once they found out, they confronted these teachers mightily and were told that there was no small dissension or dispute. What resulted is what uh, was referred to in my youth as a Donnybrook. I mean, and the Greek words that are used here to describe the dispute that occurred is very, very strong. It means a heated argument, an uproar, literally a riot. The discussion that occurred between Paul and Barnabas and these teachers was not a quiet discussion. The Apostle Paul heard what they were teaching, and he rose up like a mama bear, and he said, you're going to teach that here over my dead body. It is simply not going to happen. And he withstood them, and he contended with them over this issue. Now, Paul and Barnabas, doubtless contending that salvation is not found in trusting in Jesus and anything else. There, doesn't need, there isn't anything that needs to be added to that salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that he cried out on that cross is, it is finished. He supplied through his death upon the cross, his burial and his resurrection, he provided the world, he provided you and I with a finished salvation. And when something is finished, it doesn't need to be added to. The salvation is already perfect. And when something is already perfect, when religious people or anyone then try to improve upon perfection, all we ever do is then end up marring it, and marring it in a disastrous way, and that's exactly what they were doing. We are saved, the Bible teaches, and the early church taught, we are saved on the basis of grace, God's unmerited favor, and we receive that salvation by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. It is never trusting in Jesus and anything, because that would be to declare that the cross of Calvary was not enough to, of a payment to be paid for the provision of the forgiveness of our sins. That's a very serious thing to say. There's never to be added anything to be added to faith in Christ. It is not Jesus and anything, not Jesus and water baptism, not Jesus and keeping the sacraments, not Jesus and being circumcised or keeping the law of Moses, not Jesus and anything. Salvation is found solely in putting our trust in Him. Now, a decision was made, we're told in verse 2, to take this question then to Jerusalem uh, to be decided by the apostles and the elders uh, there. 
And so Paul and Barnabas, along with others, probably these Judaizers as well, they begin to make that 300-mile journey from Antioch to Jerusalem. And while they're making their way to Jerusalem, don't be under any kind of uh, idea that while they're making their way to Jerusalem that Paul has any uh, thought that somehow they're going to get to Jerusalem and, and there is going to be a decision that is in any, some way contrary to the gospel that he has been preaching. And we know that because in verse 3, as they're making their way from Antioch to Jerusalem, every city that they stopped in, that there was a Christian presence, they stopped and they declared to those Christians what God was doing in saving Gentiles on the basis of faith. And it produced a tremendous joy within all of those churches. Paul knew this was a formality, but he knew absolutely where it was going to go. Now, the church council, the former church, you know, as it's presented to us formally here in uh, verses 4 through 21 in uh, Jerusalem. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, they, there was something of kind of a preliminary hearing in which each side kind of was allowed to state their case. And Paul and Barnabas reported to the apostles, they reported to the elders all of the things that God was doing in saving both Jews and Gentiles on their first missionary journey. But there were others who came, became Christians out of the sect, Jewish sect of uh, Phariseeism, and they contended that one did not become a Christian simply by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, but you also had to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And all of that is brought out in verse 5. At this particular point in verse 6, the apostles and the elders, having listened to this preliminary arguments, they excuse themselves to now privately uh, judge the question that has been put uh, before them and to do it in the privacy of, of just among themselves. And we're told in verse 7 that a discussion among them then ensued, and it's described as being a discussion that involved much dispute. Now, don't look at this and say, yeah, I know a bunch of religious people and church leaders since I've been a Christian, and, and uh, they can be as carnal as anybody can be carnal, and they just got behind, you know, closed doors and yelled at each other. That's not what's happening uh, here at all. As they closed the doors, the floor was open. Everyone was able to air out what it was that, how they saw the position, how they saw it biblically, how they understood to ask questions and so forth. So the floor was wide open and uh, everybody was free to say whatever they wanted to say with the caveat that what they said or what they believed could then be uh, examined by everyone else by virtue of argument. And so all of this is going on, and it goes on for some period of time, and uh, nobody feels rushed. Everybody gets to share their heart until something happens that if you've ever been in a discussion like this, it always happens. There comes a point where things just go quiet, where everybody realizes everybody got their say, everybody said what they wanted, everybody was respectfully listened to, and there really isn't anything else in anybody's heart that they want to add to the discussion. And, and at, at that particular point, the Apostle Peter then, he rose to his feet and he gave his perspective on the issue. Apparently, he had kept quiet 
and all of the back and forth. And he encapsulated his position into three principal points there in verses 7 through 11. First of all, he reminded everyone there that God had saved the Roman centurion uh, Cornelius ten years earlier, his entire family, every friend that was in Cornelius' house when Peter made the journey from Joppa to Caesarea in order to preach the gospel to them, and that each one of those Gentiles was saved on the basis of faith. Peter had not made one mention of circumcision or the keeping of the law of Moses. They believed, and they were then filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter is making the point that God was already saving Gentiles. It wasn't that he was going to save them someday. He'd already been saving them for over 10 years, and he had been saving them independent of circumcision and the law of Moses. And so, in Peter's mind, God had spoken on this issue long, long ago in terms of the saving of Gentiles on the basis of faith alone. And that's why he says so strongly in verse 10, he declares that uh, adding these things to salvation was to test God, not Paul and Barnabas, but to test God and what God had been doing now for years. In Peter's mind, the real beef of the Judaizers was not with Paul and Barnabas. It wasn't with uh, the, the church at Antioch. It wasn't with the Gentiles. Their problem was a bigger problem than that. Their problem was with God. The second point that uh, Peter brings out is he reminded them that God had done all that he had done in the saving of the Jews on the basis of faith and not on the basis of works. And then third, he reminded them that the law of Moses was a yoke that should not be placed upon the Gentiles. And when Peter speaks about the law of Moses as a yoke, he's not putting down the law of Moses. And he's not saying it was a, you know, it was a burden and, and so forth. It was a burden in, in many ways, but if there was ever a law that could make anyone righteous, Paul said, it was the law of Moses. He's not putting the law of Moses down. It was a holy law. The point that he's making in uh, all of this is that since the law of Moses had been unable to provide salvation to the Jews after all of these thousands of years, then how in the world could the Jews ever expect that it could provide salvation for the Gentiles? And in fact, Peter declared that concerning salvation, the Gentile, verse 11, didn't need to become more like the Jew. But the Jew needed to become more like the Gentile. That is, without bringing all of the old covenant baggage into the new covenant that God was establishing. And so Peter stands, he speaks, he addresses the crowd, and with that address, he solidly landed on the side of salvation based upon grace, God's unmerited favor, received through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important to notice something here about the comments of Peter, and in a moment, the comments of James. Every once in a while, usually it's during some kind of a holiday season, uh, the History Channel or PBS uh, does some kind of a special on Christianity. And I, always, and I watch them, at least until I'm so infuriated I, I have to uh, turn it off or break the remote. 
and sometimes you just wonder, would somebody please read the Bible? You don't have to agree with the Bible. You don't have to like the Bible. You can even be hostile to the Bible, but represent it properly. And so often, and many of you have heard it over and over again already, if you haven't in the course of your Christian life, you will hear it. And it is this idea that the doctrine of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is a Pauline doctrine. That is, that it has its origin in Paul, that somehow Paul came along after Jesus and he hijacked Jesus' religion. And, and, and took it away from the intent that Jesus had for salvation, for Christianity, and so forth, and that Paul single, single-handedly uh, accomplished uh, all of that. And all of that is complete nonsense, and there's many places you can go in the Bible to refute it, but we happen to be in one uh, this morning. It wasn't just Paul. Peter is in complete agreement with Paul on the issue. James will be in complete agreement on the issue. Uh, The apostles and elders, all of them in Jerusalem, are in complete agreement on this issue of salvation, holding the same position as the apostle Paul. More importantly, the Holy Spirit and God the Father and God the Son are in complete agreement with this particular gospel and the teaching of Paul related uh, to salvation in that they continually bore witness to the message of the gospel in the heart of both Jew and Gentile and then confirmed the truth and the veracity of it by performing accompanying signs and wonders. Paul and Barnabas then in the whole sequence of events in verse 12, they then gave a formal report to the apostles and elders concerning their first missionary journey. And, they, and the emphasis of it was the fact that, listen, gentlemen, God is saving Jews and Gentiles, and He is saving them the same way. And we are not circumcising Gentiles, and we are not bringing them under the law of Moses. All of that is happening independent of that. And so the report of Paul and Barnabas, it confirmed the arguments of Peter. And then James, he arises in this meeting, and he addresses the uh, crowd that is there. This James, there's a lot of Jameses in the Bible, this James is the half-brother of Jesus, who ultimately put his faith in Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus to be the Messiah uh, throughout Jesus' life, but we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that when Jesus rose from the dead… One of the things that he did in terms of the appearances that he made to people is that he made a personal appearance to James. And James not only became a Christian as a result, but he also then became a leader in the church. He became an apostle, and he became the chief leader, the chief pastor of the church in Jerusalem. This is the James who wrote the book of James that is in the New Testament. And so here he comes and, and, uh, and highly revered by the Jews in that legalistic environment yet of Jerusalem and highly regarded for his relationship with God, how deeply spiritual and godly a man he was. And as he stood, he represented the final hope, really. You have to put yourself in the room, and if you're among the Judaizers and you're pushing circumcision and the law of Moses… It looks like, all right, it didn't go so great for us with 
Peter, and it didn't go so great for us with uh, Paul and Barnabas, but James, if we've got any hope left in this argument, it all rests upon James, and if they had any hope that James was going to uh, turn the argument upon their head, they were uh, going to be very, very uh, disappointed here. And so James stands, he claims the floor, and, and uh, he declares essentially that Peter is right in this regard. He declares God has already spoken in confirming the gospel and saving Gentiles independent of all of this. God has spoken authoritatively on the issue. And then he went on in verses 15 through 18, and he declared Peter's position to be completely consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures. And he quotes a a passage from the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. He could have quoted dozens of passages that would have spoken of God's heart and his concern for the Gentile world and his desire for them to be saved and to make them one uh, with the Jews in a relationship with God. But he declares in, in all of this that there is the witness of Uh, Scripture to what it is that Peter and Paul and Barnabas have spoken. And additionally, in verse 18, he declared that while uh, it caused some anxiousness among the Jews, what God was doing here and saving the Gentiles in this way, God had known from eternity that this is precisely uh, what he was going to do. And he declared that this that this was, it was his judgment not to make it difficult for Gentiles to become Christians by bringing them under circumcision or the law of Moses. And with that, Paul and Barnabas had won the argument. They had won the great debate that occurred in the first church council, and the Holy Spirit had made sure of it. But James has got a bit of a problem on his hands. He is a Jew, very much a Jew, in a very legalistic environment of uh, Jerusalem. And so he sees what God is doing. He sees again this mystery uh, that Paul preaches about, that God is producing this thing called the body of Christ made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And he realizes that this miracle that God is performing is going to require sensitivity on the part of the Jews towards the Gentiles. In other words, they can't demand that Gentiles be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. They had to do some giving there, and to their credit, they did that and and ought to have done it. But the James realized that in order for these two groups of people who were so diverse from one another, especially in the ancient world, to come together and to exist together, that it would take, require some give and take on the part of the Gentiles. And so he gives these, uh, James gives these four prohibitions to the Gentile uh, believers. And it's important in, in looking at this to realize that he's not giving the Gentiles a new law. This isn't like the Ten Commandments for dummies. Or this is like the Ten Commandments for dummies or Gentiles. And so we're going to not take the 613 laws of the Old Testament, put that upon the Jews, but we're going to put these four laws on them. That's not what's going on here. He's not replacing one law with another law. That would be uh, self-defeating here. 
These four things are communicated by James in order to facilitate, again, the unifying of Jew and Gentile together as Christians. And these Gentile believers needed to have some sensitivity to the sensibilities of the Jews who were coming to Christ and coming to Christ out of a deeply legalistic religious environment. The Gentile world, even today, but the Gentile uh, person in the Roman Empire, they were vi- that was a very, very rough group. They came out of unspeakable paganism. I mean, idolatry where there were gods and temples and idols being worshipped on every corner of the Roman Empire. Sexual immorality was endorsed within the Roman Empire in the sense that it, it was even made a part of the worship of all of these false gods. All of this was rampant among the Gentile population. And them coming into the church would be a little bit like having a hundred hell's angels get saved 48 hours earlier and then show up in a little Baptist church one Sunday morning. They're not all cleaned up yet. I mean, they're saved and the process of sanctification has begun, but that's going to be a really rough group. And that group of Christians in that little Baptist church, they're either going to develop Marty Feldman eyes or they're going to, you know, develop an attitude of, of grace here. And so these Gentiles coming in to the body of Christ and now rubbing elbows with Jews, it was a real, real difficult thing uh, for the Jews uh, to, uh, to accept. And so super rough around the edges, spiritually and morally speaking, and it would just require that adjustment on the part of both groups to one another's sensitivities. Notice what James says, the four things that they're to abstain from in verse 20. They were to abstain from things polluted uh, by idols, and specifically not to eat meat around Jewish believers and so forth that had been offered uh, to uh, pagan idols at the temple. And Paul's going to talk about this later in the book of Romans and so forth, and he elaborates on it. But they would, at these temples, they had all of these animal sacrifices, and they would then sell the meat. And the meat was inexpensive because they're trying to unload it. They did it every day. And so uh, Paul said, listen, steer clear of that meat. And, uh, and for sure, James is saying, steer clear of that meat and for sure steer clear of it when you're getting together with Jewish brethren, you know, in, in the church. Because, and they did a lot of eating in the early church. And so you pull out these T-bone steaks and you're serving them up there and there's some Jews here. They say, where'd you get this? This is fabulous meat. Yeah, we, they had a great sale at the Temple of Zeus this morning and we got it. Well, the Jews would just choke related to that. So it required some sensitivity. And they were to refrain from sexual immorality, and sexual immorality was and is the great sin of the Gentiles. They were to refrain from things strangled. And uh, the Jews, of course, believed, according to the law of Moses, that 
an animal that was sacrificed or was to be eaten was to be properly bled. Well, the Gentiles didn't hold that view, and they would strangle animals so that then when they would butcher the animal, it would have all that blood and that juiciness inside of the meat, and they thought nothing of doing that. This was an affront to the Jew, and it was closely tied to the final command that the Gentiles were to refrain from blood, and that is to eat any animal that had not been properly bled uh, because, as the law of Moses declared, for the life is in the blood. Again, James is not setting up a new law here. He's just asking the Gentile Christians to refrain from things that will needlessly offend the Jewish believers while all of us are coming together into this beautiful thing called the body of Christ. And with that, the Holy Spirit had made His uh, will known, as we're told there in verse 28. I don't know if you've ever been in these kind of a situation where these kind of discussions occur. They're actually very, very exciting to be a part of, and really very, very exciting when it has to do with uh, the things of the Lord. And I've been in a lot of them where you come into a room and somebody says this related to that and they share this verse and then somebody this and they see this and then another person this and that. And sometimes it'll go on for hours. And it's all going around and around and around and it looks like it's not going anywhere and it can be so frustrating to a type A. I mean, it's like, let's get to the… But it's all necessary. And the whole thing is just swirling. Seems like a, a perfect waste of time. And then finally somebody, some minutes or hours later, somebody says something and everybody realizes that's it. That's the mind of God. That's the mind of the Lord on this issue. But they would have never understood it or never been able to recognize it without all of that swirling that came uh, before it. And when this is spoken by Peter and by Paul and Barnabas and by James, everybody realized this is the mind of the Lord on this issue. And so the letter was then sent, we're told, in verse 22 to 35, was carried by Judas and Silas, two leaders from Jerusalem, along with Paul and Barnabas, two representatives of both sides of this particular uh, argument and discussion that was, was going on so that nobody could make a charge of, of unfairness at all. The letter was then uh, communicated in verses 23 to 29, and the, and the letter made very, very clear that the Judaizers had not been sent by the leadership in Jerusalem. However, they might have portrayed themselves when they came. They then gave the council's decision uh, regarding the question that had been posed to them. No, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, and the letter contained the four prohibitions. The letter was then read at a general meeting of the church at Antioch. The response to it was great joy. It was confirmation of what had happened in all of their lives. And then Judas and Silas, they spoke. They had the gift of prophecy. They spoke and built up the church there in Antioch. And Judas ultimately made his way back to Jerusalem. Silas stays in Antioch and will become Paul's traveling partner later on in his uh, subsequent uh, missionary journeys. And so this is kind of an overview of what we have uh, looked at. You say, why in the world did you read the whole thing and then explain the whole thing? It's what I do. It's what I do. I want to make two applications on it, though. Here, here's the thing on it, though, is, is in the Bible for a reason. 
It's intended to accomplish something in our lives, and more important than any application that I'm going to bring out of it, um, though I trust the applications are of the Lord, is the Word itself. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my Word will not pass away, Jesus said. And there's something about this passage that it's important that it be in our heart, well explained, the passage be a friend to us, so the Lord can bring it to our remembrance as is necessary in the remainder of our, our Christian lives and our ministries. Application number one is so obvious that you can almost feel guilty about stating it except for the fact that it needs to be stated and it's in the Bible, and that is that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it is true of the Jew and it is true of the Gentile. No one is saved by believing in Jesus and anything else. And the Apostle Paul would later write to the churches in Galatia and declare in this regard, he said, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And the word there for accursed is anathema. And Weiss, the great Greek scholar, he translates the word as, me, as something that refers to something that is devoted to destruction for being hated by God. There is no other gospel than the gospel of receiving salvation on the basis of God's grace by putting our faith in His Son. And salvation is a serious business. It is not attending a church. It is not, you know, all of these other things that we talked about, water baptism or communion or sacraments or any of these things. It's faith in Christ alone. And to be misled on that or to mislead people on that is to mislead them in the one question in life that we must not be less misled on. I want to close with one final application that I think fairly leaps off of the page concerning this event and is and of the importance of each of us as Christians. In the words of the New Testament writer Jude, the importance for each of us to contend earnestly for the faith. The book of Jude is, is a single chapter. In the third verse, Jude wrote, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And like Paul, sometimes in our own lives, it requires a conflict in order to stand for the truth of God's Word, in order to keep a church moving in the right direction, or in order to stay on the straight and narrow 
in our own personal lives. And perhaps that's you this morning. There's great pressure being brought to bear upon you from within and from without to compromise something in God's Word. You know what the Word says. You know what the standard is. But the pressure is so great upon your life. And to realize from this passage that there is a time, and it is a consistent experience in the Christian life, a time to fight and to not back down. And this fight that we fight to contend earnestly for the faith, it's exhausting. It's tiring. I can't wait till I am in heaven and I am done with it. Done with it as an individual Christian, done with it as a pastor. There will be no competition to God's Word or His truth within uh, heaven. And the fight is exhausting. It can be tiring on a church level, a body of Christ level, on an individual level. You know, you watch the Olympics and you watch the boxing there and you watch the wrestling. Some of you have wrestled in high school or you've wrestled in college or you've been involved in boxing. And, you know, sometimes you look at it and say the rounds are only three minutes. I mean, how tough can that be and all until you box for three minutes and how exhausting a fight is. And it can be very exhausting to stand for the truth, but it's worth the fight. And when Jude wrote exhorting us to contend earnestly for the faith. The word contend earnestly, it comes from a Greek word that's the basis of our English word agonize, and it involves agony. It involves to agonize earnestly. The idea is to fight with every ounce of our strength. And why would we commit every ounce of our strength to hold on to biblical truth and principle in our life without caving. The reason we do is because it is a battle that we cannot afford to lose. And it is a battle that someone is going to win and someone is going to lose, and you and I cannot afford to lose it. I think that sometimes we can tend to think that Contending for the faith or contending for spirit, you know, Christian truth is something that's just for leaders like Paul. And I can find myself even looking at Paul and thinking that whenever Paul hit something that was going to cost him in terms of contending for the faith, he just found a phone booth somewhere and tore his robe and super apostle came out and it was all so easy and so effortless for him. And we can have that tendency to look at him and not to think about the private price that he paid. He was a man just like you and I are men and women in this room. And he paid a price in order uh, to do that. And sometimes I think we can think of Paul and just think, well, that's just Paul. That's the personality that he had. That was just what he does. He had a special calling. But Jude tells us that we are all to contend as Christians for the teaching that is found in the Word of God. I'll tell you, I shudder to think of what might have happened if Paul had not confronted this false teaching and what would have happened to God's truth concerning salvation if he just said, that's it, I'm compromising, I've already been stoned on my first missionary journey, I'm not going to stand up for this any longer. And what would have happened 
to the gospel that changed our lives in this room. But I think we also ought to shudder to think about what will become of our marriage and our children and our family and our own lives if we fail individually in our lives to contend earnestly for the faith in our own lives, in our own heart, in the sphere of our influence. What will happen if we buckle to the pressure to go along, to get along? And the pressure is great. Are you being pressured this morning mightily within your marriage or by your very children or by your family or your peers or your fellow students, by others, even Christians, to compromise your biblical stand, to compromise the faith, God's Word. The pressure is great upon you to fold. Maybe you're the last one in the family, even a family of Christians, who continues to make the biblical stand that you are making in that area of your life, and you are growing weary in the battle. Contend earnestly for the faith and begin that contention in your own heart and reaffirm and double down to continue to stand for God and for His truth in your life, in your situation, your sphere of influence. And then in the words of the Apostle Paul, having done all to stand, having made the new commitment to stand on this issue, whatever the pressure is being brought against me to cave here, having done all to stand, then to stand. And it isn't easy. It's exhausting. And it does take courage. But it's the right thing to do. Have they got you on the ropes in the privacy of your heart? Just about to buckle? Don't do it. Don't compromise. Continue your stand. We need you to stand. And you won't regret it. Christianity in the United States of America the way that it's being expressed again. I talk about it often, but it's, it is the great curse that we're fighting against today. To me, it's even more than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It is the selfism that dominates our culture. It's all I, me, my isms. Every, every, I'm the most important and, and so forth. And the problem is that that begins to head into the body of Christ, and it begins to influence us in a way that we don't realize. Do you realize concerning your Christian life and your Christian uh, walk and the relationship that you have with God, yes, there is a very, very personal aspect to it, but your relationship with God is not all about you. This is a great mistake that's being made increasingly among young people today to think that this is just about us and God and a relationship with God and everybody else can take a flying hike. This is so far away from Christianity, but it is, it is again, the dominance of, of the selfism culture. Yes, there's a personal aspect 
about Christianity. And the most important thing about our Christianity is our personal relationship with God. But you and I got saved into a body. We got saved into the body of Christ. And the rest of the body of Christ is healthy or weak on the basis of what you and I do in our individual personal relationship with God. We are all affected by one another. And whether we realize it or not, or whether we can see the impact that our standing is making upon our teenage children who hate us because we won't let them do what everyone else wants, but what gets to do, but they will respect us later, even if they don't agree with us. And so it is the importance of standing for your sake, for the sake of all who are influenced by the stand that you're making, for my sake as a member of the body of Christ and the health of the body of Christ as a whole, having done all to stand, stand. If we all cave, what are we going to be left with? And Christianity can disappear in a country in one generation if everyone adopts that kind of a view. No. We must contend earnestly for the faith, whatever price we may pay for doing so, with the knowledge that it is good for us, it is good for the body of Christ, and it is good for everyone who is influenced by our stand, though they may at the moment disagree with it. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. just in the privacy of our own hearts. Are you buckling? Are you on your last legs? You're running on fumes. In fact, you know, even later today or maybe later in the week, you're just going to cave like everybody else and become like everyone else and throw in the towel. And what God wants you to do this morning is to strengthen the feeble knees as he put it in writing to the church, the Hebrews. And to just in the privacy of your heart right now say, God, I heard you this morning. I'm not going to move by your grace. Fill me with your strength. Fill me with your boldness. Fill me with your courage. Give me what I need to stand and to contend earnestly for the faith in this area of my life. And make that commitment before we leave this room or before we close this service. Recommit to God's way, to God's truth, and to the stand that God has called you to make and for me to make. It is hard. It is tiring. But it's worth it. And Father, we pray for one another in this room this morning. And we ask that you would strengthen 
that you would give us a boldness and a courage that is greater than all the onslaught and all the resistance that we face in this world, not only from the world, Lord, but increasingly from other Christians. And we pray, Lord, as we look at the individuality of our relationship with you, and we ask that you'd give us the strength and the boldness to just stand no matter what anybody else is or isn't doing. And I pray, Lord, for each person for whom this final application is a word in due season, that you would just speak that strongly to them. And as you see their situation, the hardship of it, the price that they're paying, that you would overwhelm them in the situation with yourself, your spirit, and your blessing. Bless and keep each one of our brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters, in this room this morning, in this fight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.